Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of What's Next LinkedIn Live, where I have the absolute wonderful honor, pleasure to welcome back my friend, Seth Godin, to the show. Welcome back, Seth. Tiffany, this is so much fun. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This is, I think you are my first third time guest, which you were my first guest. Then you were my, you literally were my first guest. And then a couple of years later, my second, and just what an amazing time to have you back again. You've got a new book out called The Song of Significance. For those of you who haven't seen it or don't know it's out, go pick up your copy. We're going to talk about that today, plus a lot of other things. Um, but before we get started, I just want to ask, how are you? What's been going on? Uh, I'm really good. Uh, I've been lucky enough to get out on the Hudson River some days when the smoke clears and... Uh, the world is upside down and keeps getting weirder, but at least we know that today's uh, the least weird day we've got left, so let's figure out how to make the best of it. Well, I think that's a great way to lean into this conversation. I'm going to start by reading a quote from the book, which I think will set up this conversation. Are you ready? Bring it on. All right. Real value is no longer created by traditional measures of productivity. It's created by personal interactions, innovation, creative solutions, resilience, and the power of speed. That is on page 22. And I think I couldn't agree more. You know, when Frederick Taylor met Henry Ford and brought the stopwatch along, they decided that people were machines. And that's why they're called human resources. And if we could just get those machines to go a little bit faster and complain a little bit less, the thinking goes, we'd make more money. And you know what you've done such a beautiful job here talking about experience is we have the chance to bring humanity back to work. We have the chance to realize humans aren't machines and that the entire point of the enterprise is to serve people, not the other way around. But it requires a wholesale shift in the way we think. And a mindset shift. For those of you watching this, you know, I reached out to Seth and said, hey, I've got a new book coming out. I'd love to send it to you. And he goes, ah, I have a new one coming out too. I want to send it to you. So he sent me the song of significance. I sent him the experience mindset. And when I first started to get through it, I was like, it was like serendipity. It was like we were thinking about the same things at the same time. Because I agree. I feel like this leaning into you know, employees being viewed as assets or vehicles to get something done or, you know, the means for productivity has got us into this situation. Would you agree? I would. I need to, to add one thing, though, which is there are two ways to look at what we're hearing from millennials and boomers and everyone in between, which is either people are saying work needs to be completely voluntary uh, a few hours a day, soft, flexible, it doesn't matter what we produce. But the other way to think about it is to say, we can raise our standards. We can actually produce more value. We can actually create greater opportunity by not criticizing the worker, but by criticizing the work, by creating enrollment so we're all going in the same direction. But what we cannot do is keep making the same broken promise to another generation of people that says, do what you're told, get an A on the test, go to the placement office, get a job, you have a steady job for 40 years. Because the workers have said, yeah, no, we've heard that before. You broke our parents' heart, you're breaking our heart. We're not buying into it, not a good deal. 
Well, and you ask a question in the book about the best job you ever had. And it, you went out to 10,000 people in 90 countries to describe the conditions at the best job they ever had. The top four, by the way, were one, I surprised myself with what I could accomplish. Two, I could work independently. Three, the team built something important. And four, people treated me with respect. Yeah. And in your book, you do a similar survey with slightly different results. And I think I understand why the results are slightly different. But what is very clear, because I put among the 14 choices, the things that bosses put, what bosses put is I got paid a lot. I didn't get fired. I got to tell people what to do. <laughs> you go and say, I'm going to quit my job because I'm leaving for a better job. Your boss is only going to offer you those three things as a way to stay. People put those three things last over and over again. But bosses think we are machines to be bought and sold. And human beings say, what I really want to do is to feel alive. And what it means to feel alive is to find significance. And what it is to find significance is to make a change happen. If you are proud of the change you are making, you will love your job. Well, and I think that's the operative word. I mean, I think people want value. And it was sort of the quote I started with, right? Like, I have an impact. I do something that brings me joy. I see myself in what I do. I see the results of what I do. And I feel like this is an area where leaders have really lost their way, where individual contributors don't see themselves in what executives say, right? Like, we're going to go do this. And they go, I get it. Maybe I get part of it. But how does what I do every day get us from where we are to where we're trying to go to? And do you value what I do? Because I feel like it, it matters, but then they don't do anything with that. And I, and I feel like, you know, as you mentioned in experience mindset, executives are not paying attention to what employees are actually saying. So that survey you did, you know, are executives surveying people, gathering that information capturing it and then doing something with it, our research apps said, absolutely, they are not. They are right. surveying, they are capturing, and they are doing nothing with it. Right. So three magic words here. Let's not confuse them. Managers, leaders, executives. Those aren't the same thing. Not all executives spend time managing. Not all managers are leaders. And you don't have to be on the org chart to be a leader. So let's use the words the way they're supposed to be used. Managers use power and authority to tell people what to do. We need that if we want to have airlines, if we want to have fast food places. We need the, the, the thing, the boat to show up on time. But leaders are doing something voluntary. They're exploring the liminal state between here and there. They're saying, we're going to go over there and it might not work. And you can't order someone to follow you if you want to be a leader, you have to create the conditions where they choose to follow you. So what I'm trying to argue, and I think you are as well, is being able to say to people, if you want an effective, vibrant, resilient, generative organization, you need to show up to lead because we got plenty of managers. Management is easier than ever because we have stopwatches everywhere. But leadership, leadership is really scarce. So I completely agree with the delineation between the three. And I would tell you as an individual contributor that became a manager that then became, quote unquote, a leader in air quotes, and then landed at the C-suite, right? Like 
as I moved up, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this, there wasn't this mechanism, if you will, to take individual contributors to then not be managed the way they were managed, right? That command and control stopwatch, because that's how I was managed. So that's how I'm going to manage. Yeah. So let me start there and then we'll move to the other two. But what is missing in that individual contributor who moves to manager shift? Well, first there's a, an inherent contradiction, a Peter principle at work. And for those of you who are listening who are younger than me, the Peter principle is a brilliant book, sort of funny. And it has, the principle itself is really simple, which is any large sized organization of sufficient size, if you do a good job, you will get promoted. And you will keep getting promoted until you become incompetent, and then you will stay there. Which means that over time, every large organization is filled with people who are in their incompetent level. And once we understand that no one actually teaches management, even the Yale School of Management doesn't teach management, and when we realize that a great salesperson is kept from being useful by making them into a sales manager, we begin to understand that we've been winging it this whole time about what it is to actually create the conditions for organizations to work effectively. And people are expected to figure it out in their spare time. And I think that's a big mistake. I do as well. I do as well. And, you know, interestingly enough, um, I, I got a couple of books when I was very young. One was In Search of Excellence from our friend Tom Peters, and he wrote the forward to this book. Um, Probably so the last forward he's ever going to write. It so is the last that. forward he is going to write. It is. So I'm, I'm blessed on so many levels, right? The second one was Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the third was The Peter Principle, because my stepfather's name was Peter, and so he, we used to play <laughs> on the... So. Because, you know, I was young, I was working, I thought I knew it, everything. And he kind of, he said to me one day, you're going to hit the level of your incompetency. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. And he went and got the book and tossed it to me and said, you'll figure it out someday. Anyway, I digress. But I agree that sort of gap between the two. So then the next is I've, I've sort of, you know, I've gone from manager and now maybe I'm managing multiple teams or I'm moving into that leadership capacity. What's next in that transition that you think is missing? Well, what it means to do significant work is you're going to make a change happen. You're not going to change everything, and you're not going to change everyone. So the question I want to understand, if you're going to be great at your work, is who are you seeking to change, and what is the change you seek to make? You allude to this in your design thinking section of the book. I have so many stories about the Carbon Almanac, but one of the key stories of this all-volunteer project was we spent two weeks doing nothing but talking about that simple sentence. Who are we seeking to change? People who don't read the book, people who do, right? What change are we seeking to make? And when a leader is crystal clear about that, she can then create conditions of who's in the room, why they're in the room, what is being measured, eliminate the false proxies, and gain enrollment. And if we do those things, the organization's on fire. So, Simple example, only 13 people built the original Mac. Apple has more than a thousand times that many people now. Only 13 people. They didn't do it because they were getting paid a lot. They didn't get paid a lot. But if you talk to the people who are on that team now, all these years later, they will still tell you it's one of the highlights of their career. How do you create that magic and that energy? Well, you don't have to be a difficult jerk like Steve was. You simply have to be very clear 
about the change you seek to make. Yeah. And there's a great comment, uh, a few of them actually. One here from Andy Carton, old formulas plus new realities equals friction. Yeah. So Andy, thank you for this. The word friction is fascinating. I grew up in Buffalo badly playing ice hockey. And you want no friction when you're coasting, but you have to have friction when you're moving forward because otherwise you're just slip slopping along the ice. So friction might not be a bad thing. What we really need to understand is, are you insisting that the world match the way you approach it? Or are you willing to change your approach when the world changes? Because you can sit there and say, I refuse to use email. AI doesn't exist and people don't have choices. I live in a factory town. You must work for me. You can insist all those things. It's not going to get you very far. No, it will not. It will not. And this is a great uh, comment from Debbie. So many executives are fighting this shift. Actually, if we embrace these questions, we will all benefit from better experiences. Our team members will begin to feel significant. Yes, Debbie, thank you for this. There's one word here I really want to change. I don't care if your team members feel significant. I want them to be significant. And that posture shift is so powerful because one is, how do I make sure there's enough fresh M&Ms that people like coming to work? And that has been the narrative for 20 years at a lot of big companies is trying to create a feeling of significance. But your employees are too smart for that. They know when they actually are significant. When you uh, entrust a frontline worker with a $250 no questions asked budget and say, if a customer can be satisfied by you on the spot, you who maybe didn't even go to high school, you on the spot deciding to do the right thing, that person is significant. They don't just feel significant. Well, it's one of the examples I give in the book at the Ritz-Carlton that their their number is larger than $250. I think it's $2,500 if I'm remembering correctly. And for this very reason, right, using that opportunity to give everybody housekeeping to a valet, to a concierge, anybody to make that effort, right? And also in a way that you've created trust. I trust you're going to do the right thing with it. You've got them connected to the purpose of the business. Uh, but also the impact of that small gesture from that employee, $5, $10, $15, you know, taking care of something for them is priceless, right? I mean, it goes so much further than that $25 or $5, you know, moment gift card, whatever you do, free drink, whatever it is. I mean, that kind of brand awareness, right? Or advocacy or influence uh, is, is just priceless, I think. Would you agree? I do, until you try to codify it and put it in a manual. And then it just becomes the same thing you've been doing yeah. all along. Agree. And, you know, my interactions with companies like FedEx, it's like, I know you don't care, but could you at least pretend to care? <laughs> but the problem is pretending to care wears you out. That you can do a job where you actually care for a very long time. But doing a job where you pretend to care is really hard. That, you know, Arl Hochschild called this emotional labor, and that was 60 years ago. Emotional labor, if you're a professional, you must bring to the table. You must exert this emotional energy. But at scale, we do much better when we actually let people bring what they care about to the table because our customers and our coworkers can tell. Well, I'm going to shift a little bit because... 
I really like the concept and the conversation you have uh, in, in your new book, The Song of Significance. When you see a fork in the road, I'm going to get specific here for a second. I like it. The choice has never been as clear as they are now. One, industrial capitalism seeks to use power to create profits. The second is market capitalism seeks to solve problems to make a profit. I, based on what we've just said, and that I'd love to lean into as technology has changed these two things. And by the way, I picked on those two as well, because I think where we got disconnected from employee was we went too hard to the productivity industrial capitalism. We forgot about the people. Yeah. What's your view? All right. So Yogi Berra said, if you see a fork in the road, you should take it. And <laughs> what, what he was getting at is this. If you want to race to the bottom, the way you will do that is by optimizing your machines, generalizing what you sell, lowering your prices, lowering your quality, lowering your expectations, and churning it out. The problem with the race to the bottom is you might win. And the alternative is to race to the top. And your motto is you'll pay a little bit extra, but you'll get more than you pay for. And your focus is this is for someone, it's not for everyone. The idea is that we are building something that matters, not something that's convenient. And industrial capitalism says, we have better machines than our competition. Our only job is to force customers to our will because we're cheaper and faster. Market capitalism says, all customers have a choice. Our job is to serve those customers. And guess what? Employees are customers too. If we serve them in a way that makes a change happen that they desire, we'll do fine. And that's the race to the top. And what we see is momentarily at all times, someone racing to the bottom seems to be winning. But that doesn't mean they're winning for the long haul or that they are finding real meaning to what they do. It just means in the short run, they have a lot of market share. And that's not what most of us want. What most of us want is to matter, to be missed if we're gone. Well, you know, I, I kind of landed in the experience mindset on this, reducing effort for customer to improve their experience, right? So one click buy, fast delivery, fast food, those things. And simultaneously what that did was the effort for employees went up and their experience went down. And so you use a play on this in, in, in your book when you say talking about its convenience, like convenience became the, these are my words, convenience became the currency, speed convenience became the currency. But you say that significance happens almost when it's inconvenient. Right. Yeah. I mean, Bezos taught us a lot in the way he architected Amazon, but we also learn a lot from when it doesn't work. So in 2021, they had so much turnover, they lost a third of their profit, that the average person hired by Amazon in 2021 lasted less than 90 days before they quit. That more than half of all the warehouse injuries in the United States happened in an Amazon warehouse. That the cost of doing all this just to destroy your competition is really large. There are countless other entities, three people, five people, 50 people, 500 people that are choosing a different path. And basically they're saying, yeah, AI can do mediocre work cheaper and faster than us. They're saying, if you really want something without interacting with a human, there's a website where you can click on something and be done with it. But 
if you carve out something where you proudly state what you do that's inconvenient and why it's worth extra, the line to pay for that is actually longer than ever before. Because people who want to have a choice are discovering that there aren't that many independent bookstores left. There aren't that many people who they can actually talk to who will make them feel the feeling they want to have. So stuff isn't our challenge anymore. Meaning is our challenge. And where do you think companies get it wrong? So our third level, right? We talked about manager, leaders. Next is C-suite. And the surveys that, that, that we did for the experience mindset was the C-suite. And it was all size organizations. But what was absolutely shocking to me was that disconnection between what the C-suite thought was happening versus what individual contributors thought was happening. And I always hone in on this one because I think it brings the story to life, right? That 52% of the C-suite felt the technology that they were using worked effectively. Only 32% of employees agreed to that statement. Right. <laughs> but when you got to customer-facing employees, right, those that are actually working with your customers, it was in the low 20% range. Yeah. It was the largest gap, right? And so completely disconnected to what's actually happening in the business is just this massive undercover boss experiment, right? <laughs> Where you didn't know because you didn't go look or have a conversation. And, and do you think by the time you get to that level that you become so disconnected to the rest of the organization? What, what do you think is driving that C-suite not understanding this sort of connection, convenience, significance. Well, we certainly know there are some people in the C-suite who get it. So there's nothing, like they don't give you surgery in the middle of the night. We know it is possible. One thing I would say that has stuck with me for a long time, someone pointed out, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company is a little bit like the king of a small country. They have their own air force, they have their own security force, and they don't work more hours than anybody else in the organization, but they get paid a thousand times as much. Once you're in that weird state, you deep down must know it's not going to last forever, but you also are under enormous pressure not to rock the boat. Part of that pressure, if it's a public company, which is thousands and thousands of companies, you are surrounded by people, the people you spend most of your day with who have stock options or who own <laughs> stock. So when I was at Yahoo!, the thing that destroyed Yahoo, as far as I'm concerned, is there were a thousand people at Yahoo who, on a good stock day, made $100,000, maybe a million. And the same thing's true at Meta right now. So you're tempted to make a bold, important decision. And then you look around at all the people who are going to be at that meeting tomorrow, who are going to lose a half a million dollars because you did something important and brave. It's easier to just say, ah, we'll just, we'll wait. Right. And so we create this willful disconnect from what is actually working. People don't eat the dog food. They don't show up as their own mystery shopper. I am confident that if they did, they would spend an enormous amount of time articulating the changes they need to make. But instead, it's easier to lobby. It's easier to try to lock customers in. It's easier to try to do some bold uh, corporate dividend to make the stock price go up than it is to actually do what built your business in the first place. Yeah, you know, it was early. Actually, it was right around the time we first met. It was 2001 or 2002. 
Purple Cow had just come out and I was running a call center. One of my faves. When anybody asks me what book to must be on the shelf, it is that one. I could not get my executive team to understand why churn was increasing. Like we, we were in a recurring revenue model. We were very early in the cloud kind of a thing. And by the way, we were running the business on an Excel spreadsheet, like <laughs> because there wasn't all these tools. So I couldn't get them to fix the things that were inherently wrong with what our call center agents actually had to do in order to solve the customer problem. So I went to our CEO at the time and we had built, you know, $130 million recurring revenue business in 2002, nothing to shake a stick at, right? And so I said, I, I want the executive team to sit in the call center. I, I just want them to sit in the call center. And I don't care if it's one hour for one week, everybody this week. And at the end of it, let's sit down and talk about what's going on, right? And he said, oh, I don't know if they're going to do it. And I said, no, no, we're not asking them. Like, you need to say, like, this is what we're doing. Everyone has to spend an hour in the call center. Not at the same time, not at the same desk. Like, you know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. you schedule it, figure it out, go do it on Friday, right? We are going to get together at three o'clock. Everyone has to come back with notes. It wasn't Monday morning. Everything I'd been complaining about got fixed. Like, urgency all of a sudden showed up, you know? It's so... It says a lot about management by wandering around back to Mr. Tom Peters, right? Yep. In search of excellence, like just getting out and connecting with people. I think the higher you get to your point, it's harder to do that, but not impossible. No, it's not. And one of my perverse hobbies, which I try not to do too often is as a customer, when I find something that's astonishingly broken, I'll write a letter to the CEO. And sometimes maybe because I you know, put my name in all capital letters or something, it gets to them. <laughs> and it's really interesting because they don't understand the difference often between first aid and systemic health improvement. First aid is, this is a squeaky wheel, oil it, and then let's get back to work. Most of the interactions that you have if you're a high-value customer are like that. That's what a waste. Where's the systemic improvement? Did you do the math? You know, Stu Leonard famously pointed out that that customer who's complaining about a $6 piece of Swiss cheese is a $50,000 customer. Add up how much they're going to spend at the store in their lifetime, $50,000. If there's 20 people who are having a problem with the Swiss cheese, that's a million dollar problem. You're making a huge assumption. Number one, they know it's the Swiss cheese, right? I mean, you're making a, a huge assumption there. And, and, you know, I think that we see a lot of getting those insights, you know, data, we've been talking about data for so long, but data for data's sake is not, not that interesting. Y you have to analyze it, right? Stick it through the refinery, analyze it, and the insights come out the other side. And while nothing is new in that concept, clearly, especially for someone like you that's been sort of touting this since day one, where I feel it's getting new is it's democratized of more people having access to analyzing the data and looking at the signals and the cost of being able to have that kind of information is coming down. And so do you think that that will change the C-suite leaders and managers ability to help people use that information to, I don't want to say be more significant, right? But no, increase their value. It, it's going to make it worse. Okay. You and I are seeing this firsthand at Penguin. Yes. Right? Because here's what Penguin Random House used to do. What they used to do is they hired people who loved books and they gave them the power to do their job. And if you ask those people for a P&L 
for any given book. They didn't have one. And if you asked them what was the ROI on a book you acquired four years ago, they had no clue. But now everyone has the numbers, which means that the least book involved, least caring person on the sales force has all the power to make a book or break a book. And in the short run, this looks like a fantastic thing because you start managing through the rearview mirror and figuring out what the spreadsheet tells you to do. And that direction is the race to the bottom. And that direction is the end of, in our case, our industry. Because no bestsellers are predictable bestsellers ever. They're always surprise bestsellers. That's why they became a bestseller. Because the obvious ones, the audience says, meh. And so when, we, when I talk about creating the condition for significant work, what I'm saying is the job of the executive has just turned upside down. Their job is not to be the conduit between the stock market and the stock options. Their job is to create an environment that's resilient, that's generative, that attracts and enrolls the people who, as people, are going to change what things are like around here. And the last part of my rant about book publishing is simple. 20 years ago, when Yahoo was resting on its laurels, a little company named Google showed up. There were only two people there. It took Marissa to figure out how to make the UI into something that worked. But their slogan was, we're going to organize the world's information. You know who else had that sort of as their slogan? Random House, Simon & Schuster, Penguin. But they said, nope, we're in the business of chopping down trees and selling them to independent bookstores. As opposed to saying, our job is to assemble a cadre of smart people who are going to figure out how to do something they can point to that they're proud of. And so you didn't need more than three people to start Google, but those three people came out of Stanford. They didn't come out of book publishing. Well, you've got a great piece of feedback I want to share with you from Lisa, that the song of significance captures the true essence of what employees and customers are longing for. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, Seth, you do such a great job of taking these concepts and putting into a short burst of content. But there's, you know, I, I'd say that there is, there is definitely some synergies between where we both landed. And I'd love to hear what you think that looks like after getting through well, experience I, mindset. I, I would say uh, if we're comparing books, it's pretty simple, which is we're both right, but you are talking to one part of someone's brain and I'm talking to a different part. And I'm looking at your graphs and charts and uh, illustrations and stories and the detail and the proof. And I'm like, I totally get how someone who thinks this way will be persuaded by Tiffany's articulation and eloquence. And I am trying to keep people up late at night thinking about who they might be. And we're both going in the same direction. We're just doing it in different ways. I, tr I try. I try to channel my inner Seth. Well, this has been fantastic, Seth. And, I, you know, as always, I appreciate your willingness to come on the What's Next LinkedIn Live with me and talk about your new book. But there's no way if you've been in business for the last 25 or 30 years, you don't know who Seth is. But if you don't know who Seth is, the first thing I'd say is you have to subscribe to his daily newsletter because it is a absolute mirror into what we're all thinking in just a few words. It's brilliant. But what else are you doing that people can tap into, keep in touch with you, track your work? You know, how can they continue to do that? 
seths.blog slash song is where I've posted a whole bunch of videos and things about what we just talked about. And I know that the people who are listening to this are smarter than me, more engaged than me, and have more leverage than I do at what they do. And so it's not about following me. It's about listening to the voice inside your head when it's time to make a ruckus. Making a ruckus is not some selfish thing you do. It's this generous act of showing up to make things better. That's why I do what I do. It's why Tiffany does what she does. So thank you for checking this out. And, and this sort of sums it all up. Love this quote from Seth, from Trisha. My job is to keep people up late at night thinking about who they might be. What a compliment. That is a true thank statement. You, and if you've known anything about Seth, like that has been his mission. It was nine years ago. Seth and I were at an event in Boston and we were sitting backstage and we were having a conversation. And he looked me in the eye and he said, Tiffany, you have to write a book. So if you've read either one of my books, you, my can, blame, you can blame Seth. So with that, everybody, thank you so much for your wonderful comments, conversations. Thank you for the kind words and having Seth and I together today. And as always, I appreciate you. I appreciate what you do. I appreciate having you in my life. So thank you, Seth. Thanks. Go make rocks, take, everybody. Take care, everyone. <laughs>